Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Ellis. Well, good morning and happy Monday from Orlando, Florida. AFR is at the NRB convention and uh, all of the acronyms are always fun. So American Family Radio is at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention. This is a gathering of Christian communicators and uh, the world's largest gathering, in fact. And so uh, joining me later on in the week, uh, we will get some guests in media and from other networks that will join this show and also my Salem media colleagues and uh, podcast will be here as well. Uh, one of my good friends, Mike Ferris, who some of you know as the former CEO of the Alliance Defending Freedom that does a lot in the religious liberty uh, space, is now general counsel for the so he's going to join me tomorrow on the podcast. You can find that at thejennaellisshow.com. And later on today on this show, I am so excited to welcome Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis because he will be here in Orlando at the NRB convention tonight to give opening remarks to uh, the gathering of Christian communicators. So we're going to talk about religious freedom, his commitment to that. Uh, Maybe he'll even have an announcement for us today. We'll see. We'll see. I I, kind of doubt that, but... You know, that would be awesome. Anyway, uh, but joining me now to talk more about religious liberty and a few other things and top trending headlines is my good friend Josh Hammer, who is a syndicated columnist, the opinion editor at Newsweek, and hosts his very own podcast, The Josh Hammer Show. Josh Hammer, good morning, my friend. Jenna, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. So, um, so first, I just kind of want to set the stage here for this week. And you know, you're an attorney as well, and um, have done a lot uh, in the space of judicial opinions. I'm formerly clerked for a judge as well. And so, from the context of religious freedom, I think this has been such an important issue. Uh, for faith-based, uh, not only evangelicals, but um, Catholics, Jews, and you know the wider um, swath of faith-based individuals to say we need to be able to protect and preserve religious freedom. And so from a judicial vantage point, um, where do you think that we sit in 2023 and moving forward in our society with an administration uh, like Biden, but we do have a Supreme Court that thankfully is more conservative because of President Trump. You know, Jenna, I used to be of counsel at, and I'm still good friends with the folks at First Liberty Institute, which is based in Texas and is one of the largest religious liberty law firms in the country. You know, you mentioned Mike Farris of Alliance Defending Freedom. They also do fantastic work. So, you know, First Liberty, ADF, Beckett Fund, we're, we're so blessed to have some of these wonderful religious liberty law firms out there defending our religious liberty every day. And if you if you think about the framework of the U.S. Constitution structurally, but even more than that, kind of just going back to philosophy, history 101, and the founding of America, I mean, I, I mentioned First Liberty because why do you think First Liberty Institute, Jenna, calls itself First Liberty? Because if you literally start reading the Bill of Rights 
in the First Amendment, the two liberties that are mentioned are the free exercise clause clause and the establishment clause, a.k.a. two religion clauses. The, the Bill of Rights literally opens with that. And that's not a coincidence. That is not a coincidence because, you know, if you recall, obviously, the, the, the folks who sailed on the Mayflower in 1620 across the, the pond over to Plymouth, Massachusetts, they were fleeing religious persecution. I mean, America was quite literally founded on the robust protection of not not just freedom of conscience, but actually freedom of worship. And, and, and there's actually a key distinction to be made there, because conscience is something that you can do inside the confines of your own head. Rather, in the actual text of the Free Exercise Clause, it's referring to physical worship. So it, 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 it's, a, it's, a much more, it's a much broader kind of liberty. And, you know, fortunately, to your point, we now have a U.S. Supreme Court that I, I, I think over the last few terms in particular and last term was kind of a landmark term for religious liberty. We have this very important uh, uh, school voucher case out of Maine, a case called Macon. Then we have the Coach Kennedy case out of Washington State, where we finally have seen the long overdue demise of the infamous Lemon versus Kurtzman test from 1971, this horrible test when it comes to establishment clause jurisprudence. So we, we finally have a U.S. Supreme Court that is ready, willing, and able to act on this. And actually, just this term is another very important religious liberty case pertaining to uh, an evangelical Christian who, I, I'm not sure, I don't think he still is, he used to be a, a U.S. Postal Service officer who, because the Sunday was his Sabbath, he, he refused to work on Sundays. And we finally have a case to potentially overturn a deeply flawed 1970s-era case called Hardeman, pertaining to the extent to which employers are, are, are required to kind of uh, uh, give religious observers a, a, a day of rest on their Sabbath, which, of course, is a ruling if it comes out the right way, and I think it will. That pertains not only to religious Christians, but, of course, to religious Jews as well. So the point is we, we, we are blessed currently to have a, a, a bulwark of sorts on the Supreme Court. Now, it's not perfect. I don't want to paint a rosier picture than I should. I mean, you know, the court could always be a little better than it is. I mean, a couple of terms ago, there was a case called Fulton versus Philadelphia, where we had a chance to overturn an infamous 1990 case called Employment Division versus Smith. Turned out the votes were not there. But, you know, I, I, at this point, I'm, I'm caviling, I'm, grum, I'm grumbling a little bit. The point, Jenna, from a broader perspective, is that we have a, an administration, the Biden administration, that is profoundly hostile, profoundly and deeply hostile, and really a Democratic Party, frankly, if I can put on my partisan hat for a second here, and kind of a leftist progressive culture in general that is just deeply, deeply hostile and utterly inimical to the rights and liberties of religious and more traditionally inclined Americans. But as it currently stands, thanks both to all the many excellent nominees in the lower courts from the prior administration, from the Trump administration, one of whom, Judge Jim Ho, I, of course, was deeply fortunate to clerk for on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. But between them and the current makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court, we thankfully have a, a counter-majoritarian bulwark to the Biden administration's anti-religious liberty inclinations right now. Which is fantastic. And I'm speaking with Josh Hammer, who is the opinion editor at Newsweek, a syndicated columnist and hosts his own great show, The Josh Hammer Show. And you're absolutely right, Josh, uh, that at the very inception and founding of this country, religious freedom was at the heart. And that's not just the freedom to believe inside our own heads, like, you know, you can believe anything really that you want, but to be able to exercise your freedoms, to be able to act on that, that is at the heart of what religious 
freedom is all about. And to make sure that we are protecting and preserving that right, both from a jurisprudential standpoint and then also from a legislative standpoint so that we can set up these challenges in court well to take back religious liberty is incredibly important. And one of the uh, the recent bills that Governor DeSantis just signed here in Florida that I actually am going to ask him about today was a bill that protects uh, prayer in high schools ahead of or during uh, sporting events. And this is so important when you think about the Coach Kennedy case that you mentioned, and that was also our friends and, and your former colleagues at First Liberty that advocated for that case, um, our good friend Kelly Shackelford and uh, and his colleagues there. And it's so important that the legislative branch set this up really well. So in terms of the legislation and those kind of significant religious liberty wins in Florida and um, you know, maybe a few other states that have uh, really good advocates. I think Ron DeSantis has been the best and why he's the most popular Republican governor currently in the country. How do you see the importance of that particular piece of legislation and the Florida blueprint as the model for this idea that was also at our founding and the inception um, and of the ratification of the Constitution, which is federalism? Well, look, I, I, I think that given our current Predicament. I mean, we have never been more hopelessly divided, it seems, and at least going back as far as the 1850s and 1860s. Uh, you know, the culture war, Jenna, I don't, need, I don't need to be the one to tell you, is very real. I mean, effectively, every day of my professional life, every day of your professional life, you and I are, are combatants in, in, in the culture war. And, you know, tribalism is really at an all-time high of sorts in this country. And unfortunately... The cultural and civilizational divide between the more religiously and traditionally morally inclined and the more secular and progressive inclined has also never been starker. I mean, that is one of the most clear and abiding and obvious aspects of of our current divide, of our current cultural struggle. And what that means in layman's terms is that when we have our various kind of redoubts, our bastions, our fortitudes of sanity, and Florida, you know, where I currently have lived for the past couple of years, and, and you now live as well, you know, Florida has certainly become one of our great redoubts of sanity. So Florida and Texas, of course, have become the two largest red states in the country. And, you know, I personally think that it's incumbent on these large red states like Florida, Texas, you know, Tennessee, to a, to a lesser extent, but they have an excellent legislature there in, in Tennessee as well. It, it, it is so important for these big red states, especially the ones that have Republican supermajorities in the legislature like Florida and, and Tennessee do. I can't quite recall if Texas has a supermajority in both houses of their legislature. But regardless, it is so important for states like these to go on offense because that, is, that has kind of been the recurring theme, the late motif of my commentary for the past few years now. And this is actually yes. one of my... It's not a criticism. It's kind of just an observation that I have about folks like myself who tend to write and think about religious liberty. If you think about the way that religious liberty gets litigated in a lot of federal courts, our side tends to come out looking very defensive, right? I mean, take kind of the infamous Jack Phillips case in your, in your home state of Colorado. The, the very nature of that litigation, and there's kind of a similar litigation going on this term where there's a Christian 
who designs, um, you know, wedding websites, and, and, and she is being sued because, you know, I mean, the fact pattern by now should be similar. Same-sex couple demands a website. The, the, she says no. The, the way all these lawsuits look to the outside observer is it kind of takes the paradigm or the perceived paradigm to the, to the leftist or liberal observer that the religious person is asking for a dispensation, is asking for a carve-out, is asking for some sort of license. And I don't think that we should let them frame it like that. I, I, I think that's a mistake. You know, I, I, I think back to one of my favorite quotes. It's actually one of Senator Ted Cruz's favorite quotes. I actually got it from him. There's the ancient Chinese military strategist, the military general Sun Tzu. And Sun Tzu famously said, among his many kind of pithy quotes, he said, quote, a battle is won before it is fought, and it is won by choosing the terrain on which it is fought. And I, and I worry that when it comes to these religious liberty battles, we are allowing ourselves to fight these battles on ultimately shaky and losing terrain. Now, in the short term, that's been okay for us, but again, because the courts are in our favor right now. In the long term, I think we have to kind of switch that narrative on its head. And I think that a affirmative, positive legislation, not just litigating in the courts, but but actually teeing up bills like the one you mentioned in Florida to literally say, you have this right. This is your constitutional, this is your normative, your moral right to be able to engage in prayer, do things like that. That's a very good strategy, I think, to try to kind of turn around. So, you know, look, I, I commend the efforts of the legislature and the governor here in Florida. And, um, I, I, you know, as in so many other areas of life, I, I, I wish that all other red states would kind, of just, would kind of just follow the Florida model, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I do, too. And this is why, uh, in large part, I moved to Florida from a very, unfortunately, and increasingly Democrat-controlled state that, as you mentioned, uh, Jack Phillips in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case and now the 303 Creative uh, case, all of those that are threats to religious freedom to freedom of speech that are being challenged at the Supreme Court um, originated in Colorado and for a reason, because the Colorado Civil Rights Commission is a modern day star chamber. And back in 2018, when the Republicans still had a one seat majority in the Senate, there was a sunset bill that could have defunded the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. And the Republicans then were spineless. They didn't even want to put any provisions like maybe an opt-out clause for a more traditional judicial forum. I mean, there were so many things that I advocated for at the time on behalf of, of the Family Policy Alliance uh, of Colorado and, uh, you know, among other uh, organizations as well as the Centennial Institute that's doing great work in Colorado. But this just proves your, your point and underscores it very well, Josh, that we have to have legislative solutions first and we can fight and gain ground and go on the offense legislatively to set up the court battles better. And that's not just in the religious liberty area. That's in all kinds of protections for fundamental rights um, and, and also for free and fair elections. I mean, election integrity, the solutions really should be legislative before they're going to be judicial. And um, and in the last few minutes I have with you, I mean, speaking of, you know, some of these things that are just ridiculous headlines, um, one of the things is uh, the FISA uh, story now that the FBI and 278,000 illegal searches, and this was a piece um, in town hall by our friend uh, Kevin McCullough, but, you know, it's been reported 
uh, quite broadly. And the information that said that in the fiscal year for the U.S. government that ended in November 2021, the FBI conducted more than 278,000 warrantless searches on U.S. citizens. So according to McCullough, who's done the math, and I trust him on that, on average, during just that one year, the FBI was carrying out as many as 762 warrantless searches per day, that's 32 improper searches per hour and breaks down to a new warrantless search every two minutes. And those numbers don't even include uh, include the proper searches that used warrants and carried out the usual functions of the Bureau. I mean, so when we're talking about rights like um, the Fourth Amendment, uh, right to privacy, right against unreasonable search and seizure, I mean, all of these things, we need legislation on the state and the federal level for something like this as well. Yeah, of course we do. And uh, I mean, legislation is definitely one of the of the of the possible avenues towards fixing this. I mean, legislation ultimately could abolish the FBI if we want to. I mean, that is how you would that is how you would do it. Is you could legislative you could legislatively FBI or severely curtail the powers of the FBI, the FISA course, things like that. But you know, I think it's worth emphasizing at different points as well. You know, I, I you know I heard you mention the 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 right to privacy, which uh, at least is, is kind of a jurisprudential matter. Kind of comes from the 1960s cases that conservatives like myself traditionally don't think super highly of. But you know, uh, that kind of touches on a, on a, on a on an important point, which was. You know, I, I think back to my own kind of political evolution of sorts, Jenna. I mean, I, I am not a libertarian. I've never been a libertarian. I, 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 I am someone of a more kind of communitarian, nationalist, conservative. So as I, 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 a theoretical matter, around the time of kind of the, the Patriot Act, when all this kind of war enlist, um, excuse me, when all these war enlist kind of searches and wiretapping started, you know, I didn't have a tremendous kind of philosophical objection. My, but the, the, here's the key point. The key point is that over the past decade or so, these agencies, as an empirical matter, have proven themselves to be so deeply untrustworthy and, frankly, in many ways, just outright enemies of the American people that common sense at this point, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what your philosophical priors are, sheer common sense at this point should require very, very firm and aggressive legislative solutions to cure us from this overweening deep state bureaucracy that increasingly does not have the best interests of the American people at its heart. And, you know, again, in a better world where we had trustworthy agents, maybe this wouldn't be a huge deal. But how anyone in their right mind can review the track record of the FBI from the Mar-a-Lago raid to the Durham report and all this over the past seven, eight years, I mean, you, you know that's better than anyone, Jen. I mean, how anyone can look at that and conclude that the FBI is anything other than a malevolent actor that needs serious reform, possibly to the point of outright disbandment, you know, I, I think that is the only thing that you have to include here. So, yeah, look, I mean, if Republicans were to retake both houses of Congress in the year 2024, I think that there will be far worse places to start than beginning with deep structural reform of the FBI and, frankly, the intelligence community more generally. Yeah, really well said and always well said. Uh, Josh Hammer, thanks so much for your insights and your commentary this morning. And where can people find you? Yeah, thanks as always, Jenna. So I'm on Twitter, Josh underscore Hammer. And go ahead and check out my podcast, The Josh Hammer Show on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
Excellent. And always uh, read everything that Josh Hammer writes. It's always uh, great and uh, it's always very informative. And we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning to welcome Governor Ron DeSantis of the great free state of Florida. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Good Monday morning from the National Religious Broadcasters Convention in the free state of Florida in Orlando, Florida, where uh, Governor Ron DeSantis will be making opening remarks uh, tonight to the world's largest gathering of Christian broadcasters, which of course does include the American Family Radio Network, and we're all very excited to listen to that. So Governor DeSantis will be joining me in a moment, and uh, we have uh, also talked about in the last segment, if you missed it, with my good friend Josh Hammer about the expanding access to youth sports bill. That's HB 225 for those of you who want to actually go and read the language of the bill yourself. Uh, But what this does is allows private school, virtual school, and homeschool students to participate in sports and extracurricular activities at public or private schools. And it preserves First Amendment right to speech and uh, so many other great things. And I've just been told that Governor DeSantis is ready. So joining me now uh, is the Florida governor. And so Governor, welcome to American Family Radio Network. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, as a new uh, Florida resident myself and leaving a terribly run Democrat-controlled state, I just have to first off say thank you so much for your work, and I have definitely upgraded my governor. (laughs) Well, it's a team effort. We've been able to do a lot over many years since I've been governor, and some of that required me to basically stand alone for freedom during COVID, for example. But a lot of the great stuff we've done here recently uh, has been working in concert with our legislature, and I think they've done an incredible job, and we've been able to put points on the board that even a few years ago Republicans would have thought just weren't possible. Yeah, and Governor, you've succeeded in accomplishing an incredible conservative agenda. Uh, But speaking of upgrades, a lot of Americans are also very excited at the prospect of upgrading our president as well. So I do have to ask you, any news on when you will announce? I would just tell people, stay tuned. I think we all understand uh, the country is going in the wrong direction. People see that. When I ran for re-election, the majority of Floridians thought Florida was going in the right direction, and a huge majority thought America was going in the wrong direction. So you see the difference between good governance and what that can do and poor leadership and poor governance. And I would just tell people it doesn't have to be this way. I think Florida showed that there's a path to succeed and to do really big things, and uh, we will have an announcement shortly. That's very exciting, and I know a lot of people are uh, really looking forward to that. And you've mentioned uh, your accomplishments during the legislative session. A lot of the emphasis in the media has been your fight against the woke agenda, but you've also done quite a lot to protect religious freedom and speech, including the bill that I just mentioned, uh, 225, last week on prayer in high school athletics. So how would you describe your commitment to the protections of religious freedom? I think it's, it's absolute. I think partly because it's just something that's fundamental as Americans. It's something that our founding fathers knew were, was fundamental to a free society. And in this day and age, this crazy age we live in, where everything's upside down, 
uh, religious liberty has probably never been more threatened. And so it requires people like me in, in these positions uh, to stand forthrightly in defense of it. So a couple of the things we did, you did mention that bill. So in Florida, our high school athletics had been governed by this basically private body, the Florida High School Athletic Association. And they would do things like not allow schools to do a prayer on the intercom before a football game, and we viewed that as a violation uh, of the religious freedom. And so we uh, have basically reorganized that board so that it's subject to gubernatorial appointments, and we're going to make sure that it's doing what's in the best interest of Florida. Interestingly, that same board, that FHSAA, they drugged their feet on our women's sports law that we signed a couple years ago, which basically says in Florida girls and women athletes have a right to compete with integrity and fairness, and you can't swim on the men's team for three years and just switch to the women's team and start racking up championships. That is not right, and that's not allowed. It took them a year and a half just to implement that. So now we have accountability with that body. It'll be good for women's sports. It'll be good for religious freedom. And another thing we did is we expanded conscience rights for physicians. You know, we think it's really important that if you're training to be a doctor, uh, that you do not have to do things like perform abortions or do things that violate uh, your conscience. Uh, so we put really robust protections for that, as well as overall free speech for physicians. Because if you remember during COVID, if you dissented from the narrative, uh, some of the times you could get run out of the profession. But it was the COVID dissenters who were really right about all these things, from lockdowns to mandates to masks. So I think that there's some significant protections for, for our physicians, and I think Florida is going to be a haven for physicians who want to flee places like California and be able to practice in freedom here. Which is fantastic. And I'm, I'm speaking with Governor Ron DeSantis out of the great state of Florida. And you mentioned um, abortion as well. And you also recently signed legislation that protects life in Florida. Um, can you... Can you expand on your commitment to pro-life as well? Because so many of the listeners to the American Family Radio Network are very pro-life and really want to see that protection extended across the country, which Florida is leading on. So we signed the Heartbeat Protection Act. And so, so the heartbeat bill is when there's the detection of a, of a heartbeat of the unborn child, that we believe that that's entitled to, to the child's entitled to legal protection. And that is by far uh, the strongest pro-life protections that Florida has done in our lifetime. Uh, it joins many other states, as you alluded to, who, who've also done that um, post-Dobbs, and even some had that in place pre-Dobbs that just wasn't out operable until, until after. So, so we think it's really important. It was a huge win for life. What we're also doing, though, is saying, look, we're not just pro-life when the baby's in the womb. We're also pro-life once the baby is born. So we've expanded postpartum medical coverage for poor mothers for a year after childbirth. Uh, we also have something that my wife is spearheaded called Hope Florida Pathway to Prosperity, which is really focusing on a lot of vulnerable single moms who just may not have the support system in place. Don't just go to a government office and get a TANF grant or a check. We know that that's not going to be able to, to, to do the trick. It needs to be more than that. And so we've transformed our, our welfare system into more of an opportunity system where we enlist private groups, businesses, and churches as part of this care portal so that if a young mom needs something, uh, that goes through the portal, and you could have your local Baptist church show up and provide support. Maybe they need a mattress or a crib for their, for their baby. 
what happens when you do that, Jenna, is once there's a connection made, the government ends up just getting out of the way because uh, somebody, a church that takes interest in one of these mothers, they're going to be so much better about getting them on their feet than somebody uh, who's just working in a government bureau. But I think what we've done in Florida, we have embraced our churches and our synagogues in ways that other states have not been willing to do, and we're harnessing uh, the best of our society. And at the end of the day, just a check, that doesn't provide anything in terms of your spirit or your soul or any of the things that people may need, and we're connecting them with that. And I think uh, my, my wife will tell the story. They've had Already 5,000 people have been served in this in the last year, and virtually none of them have gone back for government assistance once they were in our Hope Florida program. Wow, that's incredible. And congratulations to the First Lady of Florida as well. And these are things that just provide so much uh, meaning. And and as you said, you know, it's not just government assistance that can't really speak to the heart and soul. And that goes back to religious freedom and the ability for Christians and members uh, of faith to participate in society and actively exercise their faith. And so speaking of that, we're here at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention where you will be giving opening remarks this evening. So can you give us a preview of your remarks and why supporting NRB as an organization is important to you? Well, we'll certainly outline some of the things you and I just talked about and and, and basically uh, let people know that we're delivering results. We're also going to talk about what we've done to protect children in schools. And part of that is ensuring that they're learning math, reading, science, and not gender ideology. We don't think it's appropriate that a teacher would say, you were born in the wrong body, you can change your gender. We actually were the first state to nix the pronouns in K-12 education. And so a teacher cannot ask you to produce pronouns. And you see that that's happening around the country, and they're trying to further this idea of gender fluidity, which, which we reject. Uh, so we've been really strong on parents' rights. Also, we did the biggest expansion of school choice in the history of the United States. So now we have universal education savings accounts. Regardless of income, we focus school choice on low income, and rightfully so, but we believe that that's the money should follow the child. What that's going to mean is that there are parents throughout Florida uh, who really believe that they want education uh, with that religious foundation. And so if they want to go to a, to a school, and it can be a, a, um, a, a Baptist school, it could be a Jewish school, Catholic, it doesn't matter. That's the parent's decision. And I think that's more and more important. As, as our world has gotten crazier, I think more and more parents are just looking for, okay, what's that solid foundation that I need for my kids to make sure that they're able to, uh, to survive in, in an increasingly crazy world? And more and more parents are saying, you know what? We need to get back to basics here. Uh, we need to make sure that that foundation of our kids' education uh, involves a belief in God. Absolutely. And uh, my parents were at the forefront of that in my education. I was homeschooled K through 12, and I credit my parents for exactly that, of providing me with the worldview and the, uh, the instilling faith and understanding uh, the history of the United States and all of this that has led to uh, my ministry and my voice. And so protecting parents' rights for all of those things and to train up a child in the way they should go so when they're older they won't depart from it. Um, you know, my parents were at the 
forefront of that and really uh, appreciate what you're doing now for parents as my generation is now having children and uh, it is an increasingly crazy society. And uh, so finally, Governor, and I... Yeah, no, I'm it's sorry? tough. I mean, my wife yeah. and I were talking about, like, we grew up in the 80s and 90s. Not that everything was perfect, but the stuff that was geared towards children was much, much more innocent than the stuff today. And so as a parent, you know, we have a six, five, and a three-year-old. You know, we cringe sometimes if we're flipping channels on just like a cartoon, some of the stuff they're trying to jam down their throats. And, and that's just wrong. Uh, but it just shows you that our society has gone off the rails on some of this stuff. So we need this as a corrective. Uh, for parents to have the ability uh, to set that foundation for their kids' education. A hundred percent. And this is why the culture war is so important and the GOP cannot abandon that. And so the last question, Governor, and I so appreciate your time and everything that you've done in Florida. Um, A lot of what you express and um, how you are so passionate about these issues um, seems to come from a place of personal faith and also a a commitment to constitutional conservatism. So um, I know that our AFR listeners who are sincere Christians as well would love to hear more about your own personal faith as well. Well, I think for me, the faith is just the foundation of, of my life. It's, it's, it's how my wife and I uh, uh, lead our kids and our family. It provides me the foundation necessary to be a leader in, in civil government and civil society. It helps you put all the crazy stuff that happens on a day-to-day basis in perspective uh, because there's a higher calling and there's a higher purpose. And, um, you know, some, some of these uh, politicians go out there and prattle about um, this or that. You know, look, all I'm trying to do is pursue the truth and make sure that I'm consistent uh, with, with that as our foundation. It does help you, too, to appreciate our founding fathers and how they conceived of constitutional government. It's something that I've studied. I actually wrote a book on this about 10 years ago, which about a dozen people read. Now it's on eBay, and people pay a lot of money for it. I can tell you that was not the case uh, in 2011. But uh, what the founding fathers did, I think, was unique in human history. They understood that republics throughout history had failed. And they understood that the United States was going to determine whether we really could govern ourselves or not. And core to that conception of how society should be governed is the idea that our rights do not come from the government. They are endowed by God. These are our rights naturally. And government is created by us to protect the rights that we already possess. And if you have that as your starting point, I think you're going to get a lot of policy issues right I kind of feel like a lot of people nowadays, they assume that the government gives us our rights, and that is not true at all. And every single one of the founding fathers would have rejected that uh, conception of government-granted rights. They knew the rights were endowed by the Creator. Amen to that. Well, I'll have to go on eBay now and find a copy of that book because I want to read it. <laughs> so uh, so thank you so much, Governor Ron DeSantis. Really look forward to uh, hearing your speech tonight and your remarks at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention. And I hope that you and also your wife, Casey, will join me again here on American Family Radio Network. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, God bless. Thank you. God bless you as well. All right, that was uh, Governor Ron DeSantis out of the great state of Florida. And uh, here to join me to respond to the interview is my good friend Bill Mitchell, who has uh, his own show. You've probably seen him if you are uh, prolific on Twitter as well. And so, Bill, good morning, and so glad that I can have this follow-up discussion with you. Uh, What did you make of the governor's interview? Good morning, Jenna. I tell you, here's the thing. 
that I see is the biggest contrast between Governor DeSantis and Donald Trump. Donald Trump is, is good at speechifying the big, broad issues, but I'm always amazed when I hear Governor DeSantis speak is the, the granular level which which he understands legislation. You asked him about three or four different bills, and he knew every single one in detail, and I could tell he was not reading off a cheat sheet. I mean, he knows this stuff. And this is what's remarkable about him. I think this alone makes him better qualified to be president because he really understands what the legislation does. He understands where he can give some. He understands where he needs to stand on. And he can speak the language of Congress. So when he's whipping him, them for these ideas, he can speak directly to them in a language they understand. I was very impressed. Yeah, I really was, too. And for all of the reasons that you mentioned, and one of the things that the the media has a kind of pushed back is, you know, oh, he's not that personal bull. He's, you know, this or that. And they're trying to kind of diminish uh, him as a media figure. And just that interview, you know, is very conversational. I've had the opportunity to speak with him in person once before. And, you know, he, he reminds me of someone who is very much a leader, who is strategic, who can articulate exactly uh, what his positions are from a constitutional vantage point as a governor and what the solutions actually are to America's problems. And I think, Bill Mitchell, that is one of the main things that you don't hear from a lot of the pundits and even some of the other Republican elected office holders are really solutions. And and you see, you know, all of these things that are going on in Congress and, and some of the stuff that, you know, maybe is good on television, but is it really getting us anywhere? And that's where I think um, some of these attacks of calling him, you know, a Republican in name only only, or um, some of these people who think that being loyal to Trump means that they have to not appreciate Governor DeSantis for what he's done, really are not reasonable. And so, you know, how, and you and I have, have talked about this a lot offline, um, but what would you say to to the current Trump supporters who are attacking DeSantis? And, you know, you used to be a, a huge Trump supporter as well. So, I mean, this is, it's not like you've, you've been a never Trumper. Yeah, exactly. Well, I tell you what. I understand where they're coming from. I mean, I loved Trump for six years. Uh, MIT ranked me as the most influential civilian in the entire election in 2016. And this was coming from really nowhere but because of my Twitter exposure. Uh, but what I found is that sometimes it's time to uh, change the guard. And I was never a Trump mega fan as a cult of personality for the man I liked Trump. I love Trump because he was my best plan A if I wanted to get a MAGA America first agenda. But as I saw things roll out in this season, I said to myself, wait a minute, if I can get all of that America first agenda, maybe even done better, maybe even done more competently without the drama and the extracurriculars that distract from that, then that's my best choice for America. And people say, well, Governor DeSantis is disloyal to Trump if he runs for president. But my response is that Governor DeSantis's loyalty is to America. And if he feels in his heart and his mind that he is the best, most competent choice to lead this nation, then he would be disloyal to America not to run. And so that's why I'm saying that he should run and we should have this fight on the field of battle and see how it turns out. But I'm very excited uh, going forward. And right now it's competitive. I get it. 
you know, you like your guy, I like my guy, but I've said to everybody on social media that once all this is said and done, no matter what's been said in the past, if Governor DeSantis is the nominee, and I believe he will be, then they're more than welcome to join on the DeSantis train and be a part of what we're doing. No hard feelings, no gloating, none of that. I'm all about uniting together as a party. Yeah, and, and that actually makes so much sense, Bill Mitchell, um, to say that you know, at the end of the day, we are all for America. And the thing that has been most troubling to me personally is to see people who are still supporting President Trump um, and, and many of them, you know, very much in good faith. And that is totally fine. That is your choice as an American. In fact, that is a, a duty and an obligation to vote for who you believe is the best candidate. And that includes the primaries. But I don't like to see people saying that somehow DeSantis shouldn't enter the race or that somehow that's being disloyal, because ultimately, one, we're all for free and fair elections, right? But also, I think it's great that we have a deeper bench. I think it's fantastic that we have two really great leaders like President Trump, who had a lot of significant accomplishments in his administration. As I spoke with Josh Hammer earlier, um, the balance of the Supreme Court shifting to constitutional conservatism is, I think, and I've said many times, I believe President Trump's best and most lasting accomplishment from his first term is the composition of the Supreme Court. And so for those who still support him for those reasons, great, just don't don't lie about DeSantis or diminish what he's doing as well or his ability constitutionally and in our system of free and fair elections to enter the race um, if he wants to, just like a lot of other candidates as well. And um, and for those who are saying, you know, we appreciate what President Trump did and uh, and like you're saying, uh, you know, now supporting Governor DeSantis, that is also okay. And I wish that we could come back to a more reasoned society rather than just some of these tribalistic camps to actually have the conversations about policy. Uh, I loved that uh, Governor DeSantis and also President Trump, when he was on this show, really got substantively into their policy positions. I wish that more Americans would do that, Bill. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I tell you what, there's not that much difference between President Trump's agenda and Governor DeSantis's agenda. I think that Governor DeSantis will be more um, capable at um, uh, enacting that uh, legislation and getting those ideas across and making them actually work, not just ruling by executive order, but getting real legislation passed. Um, I think that Governor DeSantis will surround himself with more competent people. You know, I had Ken Guccinelli on the show the other day. I'm never back down. And he said that he was amazed in his office, how many enemies of Trump, Trump had hired to work for him. Which <laughs> is like, what is this? You know, why is he hiring these people that are opposed to his agenda to work for him? And Governor DeSantis has famously said that, listen, if you're down for the agenda, you can stay with us. But if we sense that you're not down for the agenda, you're gone. You're done. You're history. And Governor DeSantis is the only governor in America who has pushed out one of these Soros-based DA. So, yeah, he's strong. Governor Sanders is a tough guy. He's a very, very tough guy. And I don't believe that, you know, the swagger and the bullying and stuff like that defines toughness. I think that defines insecurity. I think that, as the old saying goes, that success is the best revenge. You know, people say, well, you know, Governor Sanders did this, he did that, he didn't open soon enough, didn't open close enough, whatever. But the results are already in on that. A 20-point win. In 2022, for Governor DeSantis, that was a record record fundraising in Miami-Dade County, which is a blue county that Trump lost by seven points. 
in 2020. Governor DeSantis won by 10 points in 2022. He he appeals to young people. He appeals to women. He appeals to the base that maybe Trump can't access because he runs on confidence. And I'm telling you what, at the end of the day, confidence is very, very charming. I think that's what people are going to be attracted to. Yeah, and and I'll be very interested, Bill Mitchell, to see how the polls shift. And I have historically, I mean, even uh, you know since 2016, and we saw how the polls were, you know, super correct in that election. Um, I haven't really relied on the polls, but it'll be interesting to see how they shift because I think a lot of people are waiting until they actually see who is entering and who isn't. And even, you know, a few months ago, there was a question mark of whether Governor DeSantis would actually jump into the race. So I can understand why uh, people would wait to say, I'm going to wait to endorse him, or I'm going to wait to support him, I'm going to kind of see, you know, how this all pans out. But once he actually does enter the race, I'm very interested to see how the polls uh, might change. And and so, so what's your perspective on that? And how do you think that that might shift ultimately the court of public opinion some and particularly President Trump uh, wanting to jump onto the debate stage, which I hope he does. I would love to see both him and DeSantis on that debate stage and actually having a conversation together about America first policy. Exactly. Well, the thing that's missing in all these polls is intensity question. Okay. You say, who do you want to you know, be the nominee. And they say, oh, well, Trump, they say this, but they don't measure the intensity of that person's commitment. And we did have one poll come out that showed intensity. And it showed that out of the GOP electorate, 24% were 100% on the Trump train. 27% were, I'll never vote for Trump in in any any circumstances. But 49% were like, well, I could go either way. And that's the key. And so when you see a poll that comes out, that has a Trump at 51 or 53, I think he's averaging 53 points in, in the RCP average, let's say 53 points, that roughly half of those people are not committed to Trump. They could go either way. They're saying Trump because they, they know Trump. He's the default choice at this point because, you know, outside of Florida, outside of the political circles that we run in, they don't know DeSantis that well. And they're going to get to know him a lot better. And so they're defaulting to Trump. Also, there's a lot of social pressure, I know, and you know, on social media to be for Trump. You come out for DeSantis, you're going to catch a lot of grief. We know all about that. So I think that this will start to uh, shift and you'll start to see a move towards DeSantis. I think that DeSantis is going to get a lot of big endorsements. He's already gotten big endorsements out of New Hampshire, out of uh, um, Iowa. He just got almost the entire legislature uh, in uh, Florida. And I think he's going to get a lot of governors supporting him. President Trump supposedly the huge leader here has only got two governors that are favoring him. And we know that DeSantis is very popular with the governors. He's become the prototype uh, for most Republican governors around the country. And they're looking to him as like, let's do things the way he does things. Look what he did. 20 point win. He's getting all this legislation passed. Let's follow his lead on that. So I would not be surprised if you got a lot of governors supporting DeSantis, if you got a lot of more state legislatures. And I would rather have the endorsement of a state legislature than of a federal senator or a congressman because it is a state legislature that is working at the district level with individuals and influencing people to come out and vote it's not the people in dc it's the people on the ground so those state legislature endorsements i think are are huge so i'm really excited i think the polls will shift uh towards the senate quite a bit now that he's if he's going to actually be uh in the race and those people that were on the fence once they get to know him because if we're this late in the process and you're still on the fence, 
Trump is 100% known to you. So if you're on the fence, that means that you would prefer not to have Trump, but you got to have somebody show you a better model car, you know, for you to drive. And so that's all we need to do. If DeSantis shows up, does a great job, and shows that he's competent, a great leader, and so on and so forth, these people that would prefer not to have Trump but need to have somewhere else to go, they're going to go to DeSantis. So I think you're going to have to see a huge shift there. You know, and that's a really interesting, uh, a couple of points, uh, Bill Mitchell, that the uh, the endorsements on the state legislative level, I think, are incredibly important um, for a lot of uh, the reasons that you articulated. And also for Governor DeSantis, who secured, um, as of today, 99 out of, I think, 113 uh, members of, of the Florida House. Uh, that's huge, but it also speaks to his leadership as well. And uh, and that, I think, is going to be very meaningful um, for voters. Um, but also when you look at, you know, some of the um, the higher level endorsements that are maybe nationally known on the media, you know, the people like Matt Gates and um, some of those from Florida, Anna Paulina Luna, um, that have gone for Trump, you know, some of those may kind of just be a wash. And so your point that a lot of people who love Trump's policies, who want to see him or someone like him back in office are in the Trump camp unless and until they find a better alternative. And whether DeSantis will provide that and will to their satisfaction, because everyone in exercising their constitutionally protected right to access the franchise of voting gets to determine what metric they want to choose, right? So that will really be um, DeSantis's main Uh, I think, agenda in persuading some of these people that aren't genuinely undecided to come over. Um, But that also raises, and in just like the last minute I have with you here, that raises an important question that, you know, Trump is 100% name ID. DeSantis is at basically the, the, um, the baseline in terms of where he's starting, and Trump is really hit the ceiling. So how do you see those kind of measuring out? I don't think that it's going to be just a blowout for President Trump. I really think that these two candidates are going to be a lot more, you know, not 50-50 because there are other people in the race, but as between them, uh, have a lot more people that will ultimately support DeSantis. Yeah, I think that what Trump has going for him right now is sort of the veil of um, invincibility, right? He looks invincible. Oh, I can't, you know, I've got to get away with him because he can't lose. I want to be with the winner. But I think that the key is going to be Iowa. Now, we've already got endorsements from Iowa from 37 legislatures, legislators, and the president of the Iowa Senate, also the House Majority Leader there in Iowa. We don't have an endorsement from the governor one way or the other. She may not endorse. She doesn't typically do that. Um, but if DeSantis can go in there and he can nacho win in Iowa... That'll set that the changes stage. everything. It really does. Because and Bill Mitchell, we got it. We got to leave it there and really appreciate it. Look forward to having you on the program again soon. And if you missed Governor DeSantis's interview, go to AFR.net. You can always email me your thoughts and comments on Governor DeSantis's interview, Jenna at AFR.net. And he will be speaking from the National Religious Broadcasters Convention tonight at 630. We will be broadcasting all week here on AFR. I will see you tomorrow morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.